Bonjour! And welcome to Time of Death. I didn't know how to look that up to look it up and say it in French. So, I'm going to speak to English. What? <laughs> I'm your host, D. And I'm Riss. <laughs> and we are your hosts tonight for our episode. For those of you who are new here, we are Time of Death. We are a true crime nursing podcast. We are two registered nurses who are also sisters, if you didn't know. Yes, and we do not speak any French, so buckle up. I say, oui, oui. Oui, oui. And amelette du fromage. Aye. Remember uh, that oui, episode oui. of Dexter? Jimmy talks about it. <laughs> anyway, we like to talk about true crime cases that have a heavy medical influence or crimes that feature... A killer who is a medical professional or have a victim as the medical professional. <laughs> We're off to a rough <laughs> I'm Google how to pronounce this person's name in French. <laughs> All right, here we go. Take it away. So buckle up for the chilling tale of the enigma, the man, the demon doctor. Um, his name is Dr. Marcel Depois. <laughs> Oh, God, I hope we don't have any French listeners. I hope not, because their ears are going to bleed by the time this episode is done. <laughs> so, this takes place in uh, Dr. Potois, his sinister Parisian home, where he abuses his power as an MD, violates the trust of his patients, and... Is just an awful dude. Mm-hmm. All right. So taking us back to January 17th, 1897. Marcel. Called him Marcel. I don't even know how many times. But it's Marcel. Dupois. Pois. Potois. Oh my god. I'm going to refer to him as Dr. P. Even though he's a child at this time. But I. <laughs> I was <laughs> <laughs> so rough. <laughs> but he's a child at this time. But he was born in the town of Auxerre, which is just a few hundred miles from Paris. Dr. P, as a kid, was described as an abnormal youth. From the stories about his childhood, he was a late bedwetter, and he delighted in taking young baby birds from their nest and poking out their eyes and watching them hurl themselves against the cage. He was expelled from multiple schools for unacceptable behaviors and at age 16 had stolen mail from a letterbox. His psychiatrist, who was court-appointed, described him to be an abnormal youth suffering from personality and hereditary problems, which limit to a large degree the responsibility of his actions. So, because of what this psychiatrist had claimed, charges against Dr. P., Young boy, Dr. P, was dropped. And despite further problems with his schooling, he eventually graduated in 1915. 1915? 1915. He was born in 1897. Oh, okay. So how old would that make him? 18. 18. Thank you. Shout out to Brandon tuning in tonight on the airwaves. A lot of shout outs tonight. <laughs> So after he graduated, he was drafted into the French army 
the year after, and Dr. P was actually wounded and gassed in the trenches during that time. So this is World War One, And he was actually diagnosed as suffering from neurasthenia. <laughs> which I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up, and it's present-day chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, my. So that's a headache, sleep disturbances, fatigue. Just to clarify, he was a youth at that time, and later on when he committed these awful monstrosities... During World War II, he was an adult and fully fledged. So he saw both world wars. Did you see what I did there with the fledglings that he poked their eyes out and then he was fully fledged? I didn't, but now that you've explained it, I understand. All right. So during his time in the military, he was also charged with stealing drugs. And then he would go on to sell those drugs. An internal investigation found that This was a direct result of his psychological state, and he was discharged with a disability pension. Okay. After he was discharged from the military, he enrolled in medical school, and this was in a fast-track program. He later received his degree, MD, from the Faculté de Médecine in Paris in 1921. Nice pronunciation there. Thank you. I have to... I have to work on that a little bit. I hope we aren't insulting any French listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I hope not. We apologize in advance. Well, I think it's not so much of them being offended as much as their ears are probably, again, bleeding. Yeah. Um, I would like, I wonder what American accent, like, how are you imitating an American accent if you're from another country? Probably like this. Like a Texan accent? Yeah. Yeah. He set up a practice in town of villeneuve sur where he handed out pamphlets about his own abilities. Like his doctoring abilities? Yes, he claimed that he could cure fungi, red spots, goiter, which is goiter. Oh, goiter? Goiter. Oh, okay. Like with the thyroid. Mm-hmm. Tattoos, scars, tumors, both benign and malignant, arteriosclerosis, anemia, obesity, diabetes, cardiac. I feel like I'm in one of those commercials, the drug commercials, where they're like... Uh, watch out for these side effects. <laughs> don't take it if you're allergic to this medication. But how do you know if you're allergic if you don't take it? It's a risk you must be willing to take. Yeah, but don't take it if you're allergic. Isn't that such a stupid... It's a catch-22. It is a catch-22. After he handed out these fabulous pamphlets, he got a ton of patients and actually was later on and six years later elected mayor. And he got married. They had a son soon after, and they ended up relocating to Paris. And actually, despite how successful he was as a doctor, he became a person of suspicion Mm. for a couple different reasons. In 1935, a patient lodged a complaint regarding the death of her daughter, who Dr. P had treated for a mouth abscess, and she ended up dying (laughs) while under his care. The charge against him was eventually dismissed, and later on there was a charge in the same year, 1935, where they alleged he had been illegally handling narcotics, which mm. ties back to him t- selling drugs in World War I. In 1936, he was arrested for stealing science textbooks from a store, and he pleaded, Oh, monsieur, I am simply absent-minded. 
and was able to conveniently blame it on his mental state at that time. Because keep in mind, he is still diagnosed with suffering from neurasthesia. I remember on Golden Girls, Dorothy Zbornak had chronic fatigue syndrome. And she, like, went through it because no one correctly diagnosed it, especially then. They still really, I mean, kind of it's dismissed. Well, it's interesting because he said he can cure basically anything, but he could not cure himself. Mm. So I think that he sounds like a con artist who had this ace up his sleeve to play as it suited him. Because mm-hmm. he definitely didn't have chronic fatigue syndrome when he was killing all those people. So he ended up being hospitalized to a private psychiatric facility because of the mental state that he pleaded after stealing those textbooks. Um, Seven months after he was admitted, he was then discharged and fined 25,000 francs for making false income tax returns. Uh, He went on to plead that many other French citizens did the same thing. You know what we call that in psych? What? Rationalization. That's my favorite word. That is a good word. Rationalizing. It is. You know what? If they're doing it, why can't I do it? Absolutely. So after being fined 25,000 francs, Dr. P lived off the radar. He was wealthy, and he had several properties from all over, in and around Paris, and he went on to buy and sell valuable pieces of jewelry at auctions. And his patients went on to speak very highly of him, saying that he was courteous and attentive. And there were, however, complaints that his methods were very unethical, specifically when treating drug addiction. So as someone that sounds like maybe he dabbled in drugs at the very least, it's interesting that he would be described as that. I wonder what his methodology was. I do not know. I'm sure it was barbaric. This is 19, early 1900s. Yeah. Over the next four years, after the occupation of Paris in 1940, the Gestapo and their French collaborators, so the people in France who supported the Germans, began rounding up Jewish people and sending them to death camps. During that time, Dr. P saw an opportunity, and he let it be known that, hey, I have access to an escape route for all these Jewish citizens. The route, he claimed, was to South America through Spain. He would make appointments for refugees at his house, which his house was on Rue Le Sewer. Sewer. Which sounds very similar to sewer. And ironically, in France, sueur means sweat, stinky. Um, I'll remember Cheryl's sweat. Yeah, I remember Cheryl. While these refugees were at his home, he actually persuaded them to receive inoculations against various diseases that were endemic in the country they were going to. For all of you that don't know, if you go out of the country, there are, like, if you are in America and you're going to a foreign country, you are going to need to have vaccinations relevant to diseases which are prevalent there. 
So vaccines that you may not receive while residing in America or residing in England or residing in Canada or South Africa, they're going to be different than what you receive, typically different. Yeah, it depends on the location you're visiting. Yep. So he would convince these patients to get their inoculations. And as a true Parisian patriot, he asked no more than the cost of the journey. But as you know, these people are escaping with all of their worldly possessions. So they oftentimes would bring their sables, their jewelry, their their worldly possessions, all that they had that were of value. Unfortunately, after arriving to the sweaty house, none were heard from again. So let's go back. The sweaty house, Rue Sewer Lure, Rue Le Sewer, which means sweat. The neighbors in the, that around noted a foul stench and reported it to the police. The gendarmes, gendarmes, gendarmes. Anyways, the neighbors ironically reported a foul smell from the property, and the police were investigating the house on Sweaty Street. Um, dust was everywhere. Many of the rooms were crowded with pieces of furniture, and there. The, I want to give some background on the structure of the home. So, the courtyard is enclosed with a high wall that conceals the house. From their neighbors so no one can see in to what it the heck is going on in this home the outbuildings which were a stable and the servants quarters had the only clean room in the entire place and this was a converted passage which also was neatly furnished as a doctor's office <gasps> gotta keep up appearances absolutely there was a adjoining garage next to this passage that there was a giant vat of quicklime. So if you don't know what quicklime is, uh, for H.H. H. Holmes, quicklime is used to dissolve human remains. That's true. It's caustic. Mm-hmm. And in this huge vat of quicklime, there were fragments of bone and flesh. Dead giveaway. In the what was once the stable was now a manure pit and was also filled with quicklime and more human remains. On the landing, there was a sack containing half a headless corpse and at the bottom of the staircase, a bloodstained hatchet. Close to the doctor's office, investigators found a a strange triangular chamber which had eight iron rings fixed to the wall. For what purpose? That's where the victims were held. Like against the wall? Yeah, he chained them. Oof. To the iron rings. And across from the chamber, there was a double wooden door, which had no handle from the inside. So they were locked in with no escape. There was a small spy hole through the wall, which gave a clear view of what was going on with the iron rings. So someone had to have stood behind that wall where there was ability to go into the room Mm -hmm. 
and would look through the peephole to see what was going on to the victims chained against the iron rings. Investigators also found belongings. There was 22 used toothbrushes, seven pairs of eyeglasses, five cigarette holders, five gas masks, seven pocket combs, a black satin evening gown, a woman's hat, a man's white shirt, and a three-piece suit. So as you can see from these various remains, there was a lot of people, a lot of foot traffic. They went on to have these remains analyzed by experts in forensic anthropology, and unfortunately, they've only been able, using the bones, to identify 10 subjects. However, it's suspected to be much, much greater than that. But they only could identify 10? Yes. That's crazy. It's very sad. On the victims, what remains were found. There were no evidence of knife or gunshot wounds. And this goes back to suggest that the doctor's MO was to use vaccines. So he would claim that they were inoculations. However, it's suspected that he actually gave them a lethal injection of cyanide. Mm. And that was his MO. Referencing the hatchet, he would then use his knowledge of anatomy to dissect the corpses with professional care. So, you know, that would be, I can see that um, working really well just because I mean, you don't, especially if you don't have any medical background and it's kind of in your instinct to trust doctors mm-hmm. and other medical professionals to kind of put your needs at the forefront. But um, how are they going to know that these inoculations are actually going to kill them? You know what I mean? Like, even still, you would never know. It's a, a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. I don't know if they have it in France, but... What I know is that there should be universally a, a do no harm code. Yeah. A, a, a Hippocratic, whatever you want to call it, oath that not to hurt your patients. But what is his motive? Is he trying to like steal he's from a, them? He's a sadist. He, he just he, wants to kill them. He was also opportunistic. He's benefiting financially from this. Mm-hmm. And then you look at what he did to those baby birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There he, was really, you know. Uh, He's a sociopath. Mm-hmm. From the home, police recovered more than 80 suitcases and over 2,000 items of clothing, including several German uniforms. Dr. P later went on to claim that this was a patriotic duty and argued that in his defense, but we'll get more into that after. His first victim was a Polish furrier, who's someone that makes fur coats, named Joachim Gustinau. Dr. P claimed that he had been paid with five matching sable furs and that he had received several letters from Joachim while he safely was in South America. All of them, Dr. P claimed, that he had killed, all of his victims, had actually been working for the Germans in some capacity. So he's trying to say, like, he was a hero. Mm -hmm. His defense began to fall apart when the final victims were named. Mm -hmm. These were the Neller family. 
German Jews who had fled from their homeland before the war. So in the Neller family, there was a seven-year-old boy whose pajamas had been found in one of the suitcases. How could a young kid be part of the Nazi party? And at that point, Dr. P's defense completely fell apart. Dr. P's trial began March 18, 1946, and lasted about three weeks. All of the evidence that the investigators had acquired from the home, including the human remains, the clothing, the uniforms, were all part of this with the exhibitions. On the fifth day of the trial, the court actually went to the home on Rue Les Sueurs, and 300 police officers were stationed outside of the home to keep the crowds back because everybody and their mama showed up. This was like a very morbid, shout out to morbid, attraction. And, you know, whatever, the, what is it called? The chicken neck? I'm lost. When, some, when there's an accident, people are like, oh. oh, you just can't look away? Yes. So I think the same thing was true at this time. It's like a rubber neck, chicken neck. I'd never heard that. Rubber neck. It's like a terrible fascination. Mm Mm-hmm. And then these people were trying to actually enter the home to see for themselves what the heck had transpired within these walls. The lawyers and the jurors who were part of the trial, obviously, entered the triangular cell where, presumably, all of the victims had passed away chained to the iron rings and they would come in and out just so that everyone would be able to experience it in several shifts that's how small and cramped that space while they were all in the home dr p later on dr p went on to feign fainting and claimed that he was very weak from hunger he's just such a freaking piece of mm-hmm. manure yeah throughout the week and throughout the trial 80 witnesses were called to the stand they included relatives and friends of all of the victims that had disappeared they also had psychiatrists and handwriting experts come as it's suspected that dr p forged the victim's letters to himself claiming they had gotten to their destination safely Dr. P maintained a calm, almost contemptuous pose throughout the investigation. I was reading some of the other, some information saying that he was almost mocking during the trial. I actually thought it was amusing, but you nearly fainted. Like, come on, pick a side, pick a, pick a reaction. And he claimed that his killing of these Parisian Jews was patriotic and that they were all affiliated with germany that proved to be a lie absolutely the court ended up um discovering him as guilty and he was charged with 26 murders at that time and again i want to stress that it's most likely and very probable that this number was actually much greater during his investigation he went on to profess 
his innocence under the alias Captain Henry Valerie, in which he wrote the newspapers to say that he had been wrongly imprisoned, it was simply not true, and it's almost that, in my experience, he was almost delusional with insisting that this was for the greater good and having these other identities working for him. And for someone that was just so evil and... I think it's all that he got caught. He's just trying to cover up. That's what I think. Um, Dr. P later appealed the verdict, but he obviously was denied, and he went to the guillotine. Dr. Paul, who was the forensic expert, was one of the official witnesses of the execution, and he said, For the first time in my life, I saw a man leaving death row, not dancing, or at least showing perfect calm. Most people about to be executed do their best to be courageous, but one senses if it is a stiff and forced courage. Dr. P moved with an ease as if he were walking to his office for a routine appointment. So this is one cold son of a gun. <laughs> I don't know how to say that in France, but thank you guys for listening. But this was a this was a this was not my best. I enjoyed it. D, you did fine. I enjoyed it. The French part just threw me off and it just spiraled. It's tricky. It's tricky. I wish I could speak French. Me too. I've always wanted to learn French. Au revoir. Revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Anyway, I'm going to call it. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I hope we didn't insult your culture. Yeah. (laughs) I really adore France. J'adore France. J'adore France. Just not speaking the French. We just can't speak French. Or (laughs) even in a fake, horrible American uh, way. Oui, oui. Yes, oui, oui. Oui, oui. Um, So the time is 7-11. Or 1911, for those of you who do use military time. We are checking out. Thank God. Au revoir. Au revoir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Merci de votre écoute. Nous vous animons. What does that mean? Thank you for tuning in. We love you. Okay, I'm going to actually end it now. (laughs)